We're continuing our study of Exodus this morning, but there's a really important question I want you to consider before we get into our story today. And that is, when is it that you choose to trust someone? It's a complicated question, so I want you to think about it and not, you know, necessarily give us an answer. There's, you know, a saying in our world, which is true, as far as I can tell, which is trust is earned. And that, again, that statement is true. Like, you don't trust a stranger that walks up to you and asks you to trust them in some way. You don't trust them. Why? Because you don't know them. You don't have enough history with that person to be able to say, well, I trust you. We don't trust strangers as much as friends. Often we don't trust friends as much as family, though that's not the rule. (laughs) But the level of trust that we have with someone generally depends upon our experience with them i.e., have they shown themselves to be trustworthy? Because it's difficult for us to step out into something that we may not understand or have complete control of, where we're putting a part of whatever this is into someone else's hands. We don't do that lightly, right? We don't, because that takes consideration. It takes, who are you? that I would do this thing, right? So I want you to consider a couple of things. Number one, who do you trust the most? And number two, who do you trust the least? Do not look at your spouse (laughs) at this moment or anyone else in the room. Let's just, let's keep our eyes down just for safety. Here are some things we need to remember as we launch into this week's story, which is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. Number one, the Hebrew people did not have a set identity when the Exodus story starts. They had left the Promised Land during the time of Joseph to live in Egypt during the famine as a group of about 70 people, the Bible says. By the time of the Exodus, they numbered 600,000 male people of the, So if we were just to simply double that, that's a lot of people. At one time, they were a valued part of the Egyptian society. Joseph had led Egypt through the famine. He, had, he helped them prosper greatly, even in that time of great need. And his family, when they came to Egypt, they were given the best, the best land, the most considerations. They were able to settle and to thrive there. But as they grew in number, they were perceived as a threat. And and what can only be understood as a brutal process, which is not really described, the Hebrew people are turned from neighbors into slaves. And they go through that whole 
process. And the goal of the Egyptians was to break the Hebrew people down, first through ruthless labor and then through infanticide. Kill every male Hebrew baby that you see. So the thing that's hard for us to consider, because we don't always look at them this way, is who are the Hebrew people by the time we pick up the Exodus story? What do they know about God? What do they not know about God? How, how has their experience led them to this place where they are a large group of affiliated people that don't really know what they're about? Well, they were the people of God, right? Yes and no. I mean, I mean, realistically speaking, not yet. They, um, the Hebrews did not know as much about God as we think they did. And when we know that they understood that God was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that this God had made promises to his people, there's not any indication within the scripture itself that they had a good sense for who this God actually was and how to relate to him and what it meant in particular to live their lives as people of this God. Even before they were in Egypt, there were not any guidelines for how to be the people of God. There were not any um, instructions on how to approach and worship this God. And this is something that we forget. I had a great uh, conversation with Daphne last week, and we were talking about this sort of in-between space, and, and Daphne said, well, but they could, you know, they'd probably observe the Passover, and then she immediately caught herself because the Passover hasn't happened yet. They don't have, they don't have law. They don't have ritual. And now we're generations, generations away from the last person who had an encounter with God in Jacob. The closest things that they had to worship were geographical points where God had revealed himself to their ancestors. So while we can say that they understood God to be the giver of the covenant, and that they were chosen, perhaps. Maybe they understood that. It's, it's hard for us to know because we have very little information about that period of time between Joseph's death and when the exodus starts. The best we can say, I think, without getting too far into the weeds, is that they were not yet the people of God as we understand the people of God. They were not that yet. And then we have this really problematic leader. Moses was a man who was in search of an identity. And by the time we really get to know him as an adult, he doesn't know what his identity is. He was simultaneously Egyptian, Hebrew, slave, royalty, Murderer, fugitive, protector, husband, father, and shepherd. It's a lot of hats, you know? And he could not go 
back home to Egypt because Pharaoh would kill him. And, and besides that, he couldn't go back because his own people, the Hebrew people, would not accept him. They already showed that in the way that they treated him after the murder of the Egyptian. He was so confused and disoriented that he named his son Foreigner in a Foreign Land. But as we said last week, this is good, right? This emptiness that Moses has to be experiencing is good because it leaves a lot of space for God to fill him up. But there is still an issue that we have to face. And I know this is going to sound like a crazy question, but hear me out. Why should Moses trust God? Today we're going to look at one of the most classic, here is what I would have done stories. Um, Moses encountered a burning bush where God spoke to him. And I think this encounter in particular uh, is a story that we have taken for granted. And I must admit that in the past, when I have taught about this or, you know, read these scriptures, I have often looked at Moses's response to all of this as sort of uh, foolish and short-sighted. Like, part of me wants to reach into the story and say, bro, you're arguing with a bush. I can't do that, though. I can just say that to myself. Um, but when we understand that this episode that we see, which is crucial to the story, is in many ways an unknown God speaking to a man who barely knows himself, then it changes our perspective a little bit, or a lot. So we're going to break down the conversation, because that's exactly what it is. It's a conversation. It's a dialogue into different phases to see how this encounter developed and where it ended. So phase one of this encounter is an attention grabber. Okay, I want to tell you, you have been wrong about something your entire lives. And I say this confidently and without any shame or judgment on you because I am in the same boat. This is not a burning bush. It's a fiery bush that's not burning. So that's, that's important for us to understand as we go into this. So we start out with this attention grabber. Moses was out with his flocks, and he saw a bush that though it was on fire, it was not burning. Because a burning bush is not all that interesting. Right? It's, what's interesting about this is that it is on fire, but it's not burning. So he decided to go check it out, and rightfully so. Like, in our day and time, it takes a lot to impress us. I mean, how do you know that I didn't write my sermon with some sort of AI technology? <laughs> it takes a lot to impress us, but even we would go to see the thing that's on fire and not burning. Be why? Because it's unnatural. 
Like, this is something that is going to draw our attention. So let's pick it up in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Okay, there's a lot of things that we might tend to overlook in this section, but there are some really important things. Number one, where is he? He is in Horeb at the mountain of God. You know what another name for that mountain is? Mount Sinai. This is the place where God first chose to reveal himself to Moses. Now, that's informative for us, right? Because when God really reveals what it looks like to live in relationship with him, where are they? Mount Sinai. They're at the same place. And so in this moment, we get to see how God is almost like, this is almost the prelude, as we know, for what is to come. But let's get to the real question. I know you're all thinking it, or I know you will think it after I say it to you. Um, why does God use a burning bush to talk to Moses? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Because he can. Sure, that's terribly unsatisfying of an answer to me. So, God had to have a reason, right, to speak to Moses in this way. Do we understand God's reasoning? No. But there are some things we can draw from this particular example. Um, God could have appeared to Moses in any way, shape, or form, right? He could have chosen anything. So, isn't a burning bush, I'm sorry, a fiery bush that's not burning, I need to follow my own rules, isn't that a weird choice to introduce yourself as God to someone who does not yet know you? Well, in order to try to answer that question, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that God wanted out of this interaction with Moses? Like, this is a purposeful interaction. So everything that's done and said is, is done and said to lead this conversation to a particular place. So number one, he wants Moses to know who he is. Because Moses does not yet understand who he is. Number two, he wants to have this conversation with Moses that leads Moses to, be, to going to Egypt to deliver his people. Can God simply show up with thunder and lightning and say, go back to Egypt and deliver my people? How much of that would, how much of that would be comprehensible to Moses? 
<laughs> That's an excellent answer. Susie says, I would have questions. And I agree, we would have questions. We know from a later encounter that God could directly appear to Moses, right? When Moses is on the mountain, he says he wants to see God, and God says, no, why? Because if you see me, you'll be like, you know, the end of um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where everyone's face is melting, right? That's supposed to be the response to the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. It would be like that, except I think um, much shorter and much uh, more destructive. The point is, God would be too much for Moses to be able to even begin to wrap his mind around what he's saying. If you are in the presence of God, how can you pay attention to anything else than being in his presence? And at some point, we will reflect on how this is an important aspect of understanding God. The too muchness. I know that's not a real word, but I chose to use it. It's even in my notes. He could have sent an angel, therefore, to communicate with Moses. And actually, the story says that God did send an angel. And that angel, you know, manifests itself in this fiery bush. I'm not going to say that every time. I'm just going to say <laughs> the burning bush. Manifests itself in that way. But when we get to the end of this passage, God speaks through the burning bush to Moses. So instead of doing all of these kind of big things, God chose to speak through something, and I know this is a great understatement, but he chose to speak through something unusual. Something that was not overwhelming, but also something that shouldn't be. Right? This shouldn't be happening, but it is. And in this one moment, as Moses approaches this bush, God is showing him that he has power. He can make unnatural things happen. And he is not bound. God is not. God is not bound by the rules. He's the one that makes the rules. Who knew there was so much in a fiery bush that doesn't burn? So, in this, in this moment and in this way, he gets Moses' attention without um, melting Moses' mind. And that's important. So, here's the principle we need to remember throughout this whole conversation. And that is, God wants to take this easy with Moses. If we don't remember that, then the whole conversation is almost farcical. The, the things that God is asking Moses to do are crazy. The mission is crazy and makes no sense. So how can Moses go on this journey if he doesn't get on board with what it's all about and who's in his corner. 
can't. He needs those things in order to move forward. And then the bush spoke Moses' name. So imagine this. You see something kind of weird. You approach the kind of weird thing, and the kind of weird thing says, Susie. Susie. I mean, Moses gives what I think is the only answer he can, which is kind of like, yeah, that's me. That's me. I'm Moses. Here I am. So let's go to phase two. Phase two, I want to call, hello, I'm God. All right? This is, this is what happens here in phase two. Let's pick it up in verses five through six. God is speaking from the bush. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Okay. There are two, there are two important declarations that happen within this moment. Number one, and this is important, this place, which was once a curiosity, is now holy. Meaning that there is no other place on earth that compares to this place and this moment with a shepherd in the wilderness. And so God explains to him, I'm here and therefore this ground is holy. And this would have been a really strange idea to a man who grew up in a land of a lot of gods. Gods for everything, you know, all the different stuff in their life, they had gods. And so to be in the presence of what God is saying, I, I'm the living God, this place is holy because in your presence, that would have been a big idea. That's a big idea for Moses. And what does God tell him? This is holy ground, and you have to respond to my presence by removing your sandals. This is a great moment because Moses doesn't know what to do. So God gives him an idea of how he can respond to his presence. Secondly, God declares that he is not some sort of um, God of this bush or God of this place. This is the God of Moses' ancestors. The God. The God of where his people have come from. Now, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to Moses that this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Based on, you know, what we've talked about in previous weeks, if he does know something about this God, he would know about the covenant, which, you know, he knows about that. He knows who Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are. Otherwise, God wouldn't have said Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he knows who these people are. And maybe he knew, too, how 
God had interacted with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but does he know who this God is other than that affiliation? Not so much. He had never been exposed to God in this way. No one since Jacob had been exposed to God in this way. And so God shows himself in this demonstrable way, but Moses didn't have, didn't know what to do, so God kind of tells him what to do. And Moses' response is appropriate. He says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You need to take your shoes off because this is holy ground. And what does Moses do? He hides. In plain sight. But he hides. Why? What do you do when a God you have heard about and a God that you know is the God of your people, what do you do when he shows up in front of you? How do you feel? I think he waited too long to hide, personally. So let's go to phase three. Phase three is uh, coming from God's perspective. Here's what I need. That should be a D. I don't know what Neek is, but that should be a D. Okay, so uh, Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Okay, this entire passage is problematic, mainly for Moses. Not necessarily for us, but it's problematic for Moses. What does God say? He says, I have seen the misery of my people, and I want to rescue them from their suffering. But keep in mind, this suffering has been going on for quite a while. And we can't help but think back to the end of Exodus chapter 2, where God hears the cries of his people, and he remembers his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and moves to act. Secondly, he says, I promised the land of Canaan to my people— and I want to give it to them. But in order to do this, I need you wearing all these hats, shepherd in the wilderness, to go to Pharaoh, the king of the empire, and to tell him that he needs to let my people go. And then I need you to approach what could be over a million people and tell them to follow you leave their homes, and go into the wilderness. I mean, that's a Tuesday, right? This is a big ask. Like, seriously, this is a big ask, and it would be a big ask for anyone. The task on paper seems impossible, but for Moses, it's especially big. Why? Well, 
I mean, he was wanted for murder in Egypt. He was a traitor to the people who raised him. The people, the Hebrew people didn't like him because he grew up in wealth while they were slaves. God might as well have said, go back to the place where everybody hates you and tell them what to do. Does that sound attractive? Is that something you would say, oh, sure, well, because you're God, of course I will do that. Look, we have a hard enough time letting God guide us through a Tuesday, let alone doing the kinds of things that he asked Moses to do. It is an impossible situation. Egypt has no reason to listen to Moses. Zero. The Hebrews have no reason to trust him and follow him. There is no way this should work. No way. So if you were Moses, what would you be thinking at this point? Which leads us to phase four. We may not get through my entire sermon today. I might have to cut it short. But I knew that coming in, so we're all good. Number four, I can't do this. Um, let's look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Okay. Moses' objection was valid, and he gives an honest response here. Now, here's where we, as the readers, who know other things that Moses doesn't know, this is where we lose track. Because we read this, and what do we say? Well, God's speaking to him, so he should just do it. Friends, that is a gross oversimplification (laughs) of what's happening in this moment. His objection was valid. Who am I? And out of fairness to God, who is anyone to complete this task? It's not like there is some unique and specific leader who has all the talents and gifts that could walk into the situation and be like, no sweat. Pharaoh, let my people go. My people, follow me, even though you don't like me. Like, there's, there's, there's no one that can step into these shoes. And the fact of the matter is, Moses is not worthy. Nor is he equipped to perform this kind of task. So the big thing that we have to keep in mind is we oversimplify it to say, well, Moses, don't you know you can trust God? And the answer is No. He does not know he can trust God. And then, in what can only be like some weird inside joke, God gives him an encouragement, which is what? Hey, I know this is hard, but someday you're going to worship here with the people, and that's when you're going to know everything is good. Uh, Thanks? Like, how is that realistically a reassurance for Moses to go and do these things 
It's like everything's going to be fine. You know, jump off that building. Everything's going to be fine. One day, you're going to bring your kids up to this building and be like, I jumped off this building. And that's when you'll know you survived jumping off the building. Right? I mean, a little bit, that's, that's the promise that he gives him. But God said something really important in this that maybe we skipped over because we're dealing with all these other things. God says, I will be with you. Now, granted, Moses doesn't understand what this means. Did he, for example, and I know this sounds ridiculous, but this is a possibility. When God said to Moses, I will be with you, did Moses think he had to dig up this bush and carry it with him wherever he went? Like, I, I, I know that's a weird suggestion, but what does he know? This is where God is. Does he have to take, and, and, and for someone who grew up you know, in a culture where they worshiped images and statues of other things, that's not so far-fetched that he would take this bush along with him. But we know what this means. We know that the presence of God makes all the difference. But we can't forget that Moses doesn't know that yet. That God wants Moses to know him and trust him, but it's going to take time for that to happen. Okay. We're going to stop there, um, and we'll cover the rest of it into chapter 4 next week. But there's a couple things I want you to consider this morning as we've gone through this whole thing, because we are left with quite the conundrum with this story and with all the challenging things that come up throughout the story. What is the conundrum? The conundrum is that Moses doesn't know that God is trustworthy until what? He trusts God. That's backwards. Right? That's backwards. God hasn't proven himself to Moses. And yet, he's asking Moses to trust him without all of that proof. Now, we know, as readers of the story, well, it's God. You should trust him. But Moses doesn't know that yet. And here's where this point of contact really speaks to us, and that is this. Listen. God may give us everything we need to be the people that he wants us to be. But you still have to trust he's going to do it. God is not going to say like, hey, start this mission and oh, tomorrow a million dollars shows up in your bank account. Now you can pay for it. Oh, and then like, we know those kinds of things don't really happen in life, right? We know that when we go out into the world to be the people that God wants us to be, there is an enormous element of faith and trust that goes along with it. There just is. When we step out into the unknown, 
when we do things that are outside of our comfort zone, when we try to represent God in this world, we trust that God will be with us. Is God with us? Yes. Does it always feel that way? No. Does he give us all the assurances and pave the path for us? Not regularly. Right? There is something convicting to me in seeing and wrestling in my own life what what does God want me to be and what's possible and what's not possible. And then I read this story and I see that even though God, and we'll, we'll cover this part next week, even though God gives Moses, like even someone to speak for him, Moses still has to trust God and step out in faith. He still has to. Otherwise, he can stay with his sheep. A lot of times, you know, we pray for things and we ask for God's guidance. We ask for his help. And in some ways, we expect God to, to make what we're asking for or praying for possible. Which God does that, right? Like, God does go before us, which is a promise he gives to Moses. He goes before us. But the thing we have to understand is that none of this goes anywhere if the person, if we, if Moses doesn't say, I don't know how this is going to work, but I'll go. Right? I, I, I don't know. How is he going to convince Pharaoh? Does he know? How is he going to convince his people that they should follow him? Does he know? Did God make all sorts of promises to him? Yes. When do those promises materialize? Only when Moses goes. We cannot forget, friends, that even in this time of God encountering people in these dynamic, even like physical manifestations, that faith and trust are still the things that make this happen. And if you are waiting for God to give you the affirmation you need or to line everything up for you, then you don't trust him. You are asking him to prove himself to you before you will trust him. And that's not the way this works. Is that frustrating? Yeah, sometimes it really is. Because what? We want to have control. We want to know how things are going to work out. And one of the scariest things for us is stepping out into something that we don't have control of. But that is what this is all about. God has control of it. And you don't have to know every single piece in order for God to be God and you to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish. You don't have to know that. Instead, you have to make room in your life to say, this is impossible for me, and I don't know how you're going to work this out, but let's go anyway.
And to, to be completely frank with you, not everything is going to work out even then how you hope it will. It's, it's not. But we can choose to live a life that is confined by what we know, what we see, what we can control, what God has delivered to us so that we will go out and work for him. Or we can acknowledge that our God is indescribable, uncontainable, that there is no God besides him. And that if we are going to step forward and do anything crazy, God will be with us. He will go before us. And that doesn't mean it's easy. That's just selfish of us wanting it to be easy. It doesn't mean it's easy. But what it means is when we step out into the unknown with God, the results... (laughs) You might just convince an empire to let their entire labor force go. And you might, you might get all those people who you know don't like you to follow you into the way of God. That's crazy! Right? Let's not spend too much time waiting for everything to line up. Instead, let's trust God, not that he will work everything out for us so that we feel good and it all went like we wanted to, but let's trust instead that God might put something impossible in front of us. And let's trust that if God puts something impossible in front of us, he knows that it is possible. And let's not worry so much about what we don't know. Maybe we'll know more after the first step, or the second, or the third. So that's our challenge. All that from a fiery bush that does not burn. But we are Moses. He is us. He has the same fears, doubts. He had a rough background. And that's the moment where, this is the moment where he has to decide, will I go or not? He's already told God, here I am. And God could promise him everything. But the exodus as we know it doesn't happen if Moses doesn't decide to go in spite of everything he doesn't know.